This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Helen, do you still trust me? The words rang in Helen Claben's mind as she watched the plane's fuel gauge drift closer and closer to empty. Ralph Flores had asked her this in their hotel room the night before, his stern eyes not breaking eye contact. She'd laughed him off. He said he was an experienced pilot. Of course she trusted him. Now, Helen realized they were desperately lost. Ralph kept climbing higher and higher. He claimed if they just rose above the clouds, he'd be able to get his bearings. Helen tried to tell herself this made sense. After all, he knew a lot more about flying than she did. But deep down, she was very worried. Suddenly, the engine began sputtering. The fuel gauge had finally hit empty. For a brief moment, the plane glided silently through the air, Helen thought to herself, how do you prepare for a plane crash? Just hang on? How do you sit? The last thing she remembered thinking was, what should I do with my feet? And then they were falling. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our first of two episodes on Helen Claben and Ralph Flores, near strangers who were stranded in the Yukon forest after their single-engine plane crashed in 1963. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love, Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. In August 1962, Helen Claben found herself feeling aimless. 
She had just turned 21, and for the past few years, she had been drifting from job to job, unsure of where she wanted to land. All she knew was that she wanted an adventure. All her friends were off traveling in Europe, but Helen figured she should start by seeing America. She'd never ventured far from her home in Brooklyn. When Helen saw an ad in the newspaper from another young woman looking for a traveling companion, she jumped at the chance. Their exotic destination? Fairbanks, Alaska. About 198 miles south of the Arctic Circle, Fairbanks is the second largest city in Alaska. In 1960, the not-so-booming metropolis had a population of approximately 43,000. It's also the coldest city in the United States, with an average annual temperature of 27.6 degrees Fahrenheit. But for Helen Clavin, Alaska represented adventure. It was unfamiliar, anonymous, a place to find herself. So despite her mother's protests, Helen and her new travel partner set out on a cross-country road trip from New York to Fairbanks. After a few months, however, the excitement died down. Helen was 4,000 miles from home. She still hadn't found any jobs that really excited her, and the temperature kept falling towards its January average of negative 8 degrees Fahrenheit. In January 1963, a group of Helen's friends decided to seek out warmer shores in Mexico. On a whim, she decided to go with them. But money was tight. So when she saw an ad for a private flight to San Francisco at a fraction of the price of a regular ticket, she responded immediately. The pilot, 42-year-old Ralph Flores, was headed back home to the Bay Area after finishing up a job as an electrician in Fairbanks. He had an extra seat in his single-engine plane. His only stipulation was that he wanted to leave as soon as possible. Helen's first impression of Ralph Flores was how soft-spoken and stoic he was. Even so, Helen wasn't quite sure what to make of him. She was also a little wary of his small, single-engine plane. When she asked him how old it was, he replied, your age. But Helen didn't know the first thing about planes, and it looked like it was in fine condition. She remembered that a bush pilot friend of hers had said that age didn't matter much with planes as much as maintenance did. She pushed her fears aside and got ready to go. They flew the short trip from Fairbanks to Whitehorse, Alaska on February 1st, 1963. After landing in Whitehorse, they were told that the weather was too bad to set out for San Francisco right away. So they got a hotel room together and settled in for the night. Helen was a little nervous about the weather. Ralph looked her in the eye and asked her if she trusted him. She told him yes. She had no reason not to. He seemed to know what he was doing, and the trip from Fairbanks to Whitehorse had gone off without a hitch. While they waited for the storm to pass, Ralph's quiet disposition finally got a bit warmer. He told Helen about his childhood in Mexico and his wife and seven children in California. More than anything, he talked about his faith. Ralph was a devoted Mormon. He made a couple of barbed comments about Helen being Jewish. Helen got the feeling he was trying to convert her. 
She wasn't especially religious, and Ralph's intense devotion to God took her aback. Out of the blue that night, Ralph said, I believe you are an instrument in my life. Helen wasn't quite sure what to say, but she responded, and you're probably an instrument in mine too. Then she blurted out, I'll probably die tomorrow. Helen shocked both herself and Ralph with that thought. She had no idea where it came from, probably just nerves getting the best of her. Helen laughed it off, but Ralph didn't laugh. He quietly told her that he knew she wouldn't die. God had spoken to him and told him she'd be okay. Helen knew he was probably right. Maybe not the speaking to God part, but there was no real reason to worry. However, deep down in her gut, Helen felt like she was hurtling towards a crucial, life-defining moment. She didn't have a feeling of either hope or dread, only anticipation. The next morning, February 4th, the weather had gotten a bit better. It was still fairly stormy, but the air traffic controllers told Helen and Ralph the skies would clear up as the day went on. They received clearance to take off. Ralph put Helen in charge of the airway map and the radio facility chart. She would be responsible for manning the radio and helping Ralph navigate. As they taxied down the runway, Helen squinted down at the pages, trying to channel her nervous energy into studying the charts and maps. Interference made it hard to understand any of the instructions coming over the radio. Helen strained to listen, through the white noise, she could make out a voice saying, are you ready to leave? The stormy weather was partially responsible for the poor quality of the radio signals. It also probably didn't help that Helen had no piloting experience and wouldn't have known what terminology or phrases to listen for. The takeoff was a bumpy one. Ralph drove the plane upwards in a circular motion. Helen yelled over to Ralph, What's wrong? What are you doing? He responded, have to spiral through the clouds, get out on top. Highly trained pilots use an instrument approach during bad weather. This technique involves using radio signals for vertical and lateral guidance. That way, even if a pilot can't see anything out the windshield, they can figure out their location by signal. Unfortunately, Ralph wasn't trained to use this approach. He only knew how to fly using visual cues and the radio navigation system. Helen's gut was screaming at her that something was wrong. The weather was getting worse, and Ralph couldn't seem to rise above the clouds. She kept trying to tell herself that he was an experienced flyer who knew what he was doing. Finally, they broke out over the clouds. Helen's pulse started to slow down. But the respite was a short one. Half an hour later, they found themselves in even worse weather than before. Nothing was visible in the thick cloud cover. Claben focused on just chewing her gum. She was terrified, but she knew there was nothing she could do. She felt her stomach sink as she realized that Ralph was switching to the final tank of fuel. Each tank could carry the plane for about 45 minutes. Helen glanced at the clock and did the math. At three o'clock, they would run out of fuel. Ralph started rising again. 
he was determined to break above the clouds. The plane wasn't stocked with oxygen equipment, and as they rose higher, their lungs ached in the thin air. By 2.40, with only 20 minutes to spare, Ralph finally gave up on breaking out of the clouds from above and began to head down for an emergency landing. He barked at Helen, study the map. Helen had completely lost track of their location by this point. She couldn't see any landmarks below them. Everything was just a swirling gray mass. She watched the needle in the fuel gauge as it moved closer and closer to empty. Then Ralph snapped at her, the radio chart. Radio navigation systems broadcast a signal along a narrow path. By tuning into the proper sequence of frequencies and listening for the signal, pilots can center themselves along the flight path from airport to airport. This was the preferred method of air navigation before World War II. The system was phased out beginning in the 1940s because of its heavy equipment, difficulty of use, and high chance of technical failure. Ralph Flores, however, didn't see the need to upgrade. Helen held the radio range listing in front of Ralph as he steered the plane left and right, trying to find the navigational beam. For one brief, peaceful moment, he found it. Then it was lost again. Suddenly, a sharp wind rippled through the plane and tore the radio chart out of Helen's hands. She and Ralph both searched around the cabin, but they couldn't find it. It was as if the chart had vanished into thin air. Helen looked at the clock, 2.55. They would run out of fuel in five minutes or less. Helen watched as Ralph hunched over the panel, doing everything he could to slow the inevitable crash. The fuel gauge drifted lower and lower and finally hit zero. Helen thought to herself, well, here we go. She pulled her parka closer around her body, more for emotional comfort than for safety, and adjusted her seatbelt as tightly as she could. At the very last second, Ralph flipped a switch for the auxiliary gas tank. Helen felt her heart leap. She'd been worried for nothing. But then the engine began to sputter. Ralph had waited too long to switch tanks, desperate to use every ounce of gas. The plane began to drift down. Before they knew it, they were plummeting towards the trees below. Helen looked out over the gloomy, snow-capped forest. She didn't know what to do in a crash or if there was anything she could do at all. The last thing she remembered was watching the plane wing hit a tree and thinking, what should I do with my feet? Then she blacked out. We'll catch up with Helen and Ralph right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. 
You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. At about 3 p.m. on February 4th, 1963, Helen Claben closed her eyes as her plane barreled down into the Yukon forest. When she opened her eyes, the sky was glowing with late afternoon light. She realized she must have blacked out for at least a half an hour. Her first thought was, hey, I'm alive. Well, what do you know? We did crash. I was right. Focusing on the fact that she'd predicted the crash might have helped Helen feel like she had control over the situation. Helen did a quick check of her body. Her right arm looked fine. Pain shot through her left arm when she tried to move it. She was fairly sure it was broken. This didn't scare her as much as it amazed her. She'd never broken a bone in her life. Helen looked down. Her right foot was stuck between the seat and the side of the plane. It hurt too, even worse than her broken arm. She reached up to touch her face. Her chin was split open and the rest of her face was sore to the touch, probably bruised. Her eyes drifted over to the instrument panel. It was covered in blood. Down under the panel was Ralph. His seat had completely detached from the flooring, and he lay in a heap at the front of the plane, blood pouring out of his mouth. Fear finally leapt into Helen's chest. If Ralph was dead, she didn't know what she'd do. Helen softly called his name. She was afraid of startling him in case he had any broken bones, but he didn't move or speak. After a few minutes, Ralph began to come to. He mumbled that he wanted to go back to sleep. Helen was startled by how severely his face had been smashed. He could barely open his mouth to speak. Without saying much, Ralph slowly collected himself and crawled out through the broken window. Ralph pulled on his parka. Then he surveyed the damage. The plane had landed at a 45-degree angle, sloping downwards. The front of the plane was absolutely destroyed, and everything inside had fallen forward. All around them were tall, snow-covered trees. Ralph peered through the window and calmly told Helen that he was sure his jaw was broken, and some of his ribs were broken too. Then he hobbled off toward the woods and mumbled that he was going to start a fire. While he was gone, Helen tried to wrestle her right foot free. She looked at the thermometer on the blood-soaked instrument panel, negative 48 degrees Fahrenheit. She wasn't sure whether it was broken or not, but given the average temperatures in the Yukon forest, the reading easily could have been accurate. Ralph finally staggered back out of the forest with an armful of wood. He got a fire going, then helped Helen climb out of the plane. Once they were both on solid ground, he said, you know why we're here, don't you? Because you reject Jesus Christ. Helen's first instinct was to bite back and tell him off. 
but she realized things were going to be difficult enough without adding a religious debate into the mix. So she bit her tongue. By this point, it was already dark, and they were both too injured to walk very far anyway. Their only hope was that they were expected in San Francisco the next day. When they didn't arrive, a search party would be sent out to find them. Their best course of action was to settle in for the night and wait for rescue to arrive in the morning. Helen tore open one of her bags and pulled out clothes to wrap themselves in for extra warmth. Unfortunately, she'd packed for San Francisco, not the Yukon. None of her clothes were warm enough to be of much help. The two climbed back into the plane to shield themselves from the wind, huddled in among the wreckage, and tried to get some sleep. In the morning, Helen and Ralph set to work, preparing for their inevitable rescue. Ralph showed Helen how to broadcast messages on the radio. Her feet were in such a rough condition, she couldn't help much with any physical tasks, so flagging down any passing planes would be her responsibility. Ralph headed into the forest to collect more firewood. Meanwhile, Helen took stock of their food. Four small cans of sardines, two cans of tuna, two cans of fruit salad, one box of saltines, a half bottle of protein pills, a half bottle of multivitamins, five pieces of chocolate, and two tablespoons of tang. Helen was shocked at how little food they had. It was barely enough to hold them over for one day. Surely there had to be more somewhere. When Ralph came back, she asked him where the emergency rations were. Ralph couldn't look her in the eye. He quietly said that he hadn't packed any. They took up too much space. That was unbelievable. Suddenly, a new thought occurred to Helen. Did Ralph even have insurance? When they were rescued, who would pay for the damage? Still avoiding eye contact, Ralph admitted that no, he didn't have insurance. It was too expensive. He decided he didn't need it. Helen's frustration finally boiled over. She channeled all her panic and anxiety into anger at Ralph. She let loose, screaming at him for being so irresponsible, for daring to fly without food rations or insurance, for dragging her into this mess of his own creation. Yelling wouldn't fix anything, but it felt good. Then, suddenly, they heard a plane. Ralph started fanning the campfire's flames to send up a smoke signal. Helen grabbed the radio's mic and yelled, Mayday, Mayday, this is Howard N5886. We are alive. We hear you, West. Please come back. We need medical attention and food. I am changing frequencies. She sent the message out across as many frequencies as she could, but the plane sounded like it was moving further and further away. And then it was gone. That plane may have actually been looking for Helen and Ralph. A massive search effort was underway, based in Fort Nelson, British Columbia, about 500 miles southeast. But Ralph had drifted away from his planned route due to the bad weather, so the planes searching along the flight path might have been too far away to pick up their broadcasts. Helen and Ralph didn't hear any more planes for the rest of the day. They sat in silence. Then, as the sun started to set, they climbed back into the wreckage. 
Ralph tried to tear some of the equipment out of the plane to give them more room, but it was a slow effort since every movement made his broken ribs ache. Without sleeping bags, they padded the floor with spare clothes and stuffed blankets into the broken windows to keep out the wind. Ralph opened his suitcase and Helen finally saw what he'd packed in lieu of food or emergency supplies. He'd stuffed his entire suitcase full of religious books. Helen pulled out her own books, Thoreau's Walden and Plato's Republic, but it was hard to focus with Ralph reading aloud from the Book of Mormon. Helen told Ralph that she respected his faith, but she had her own views, and no amount of evangelizing was going to convert her. Ralph's eyes grew wide with concern. He told her earnestly that he was afraid they wouldn't be saved until she accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. Helen was too tired to argue. Eventually, she put her book down, rolled over, and went to sleep. The full reality of the situation didn't hit Helen until the third day after the crash. Planes kept flying past, but no one was responding to the radio broadcasts. Dread hit them as they realized that the tree coverage was so thick, pilots might not be able to see their smoke signals. That third day, Helen felt her first solid wave of hunger. She'd been coasting on adrenaline, but after a few days, with only a couple bites of food at a time, her stomach felt like it was folding in on itself. The mental and emotional effects of severe hunger were starting to set in too. Helen became convinced that Ralph's accusation was right. God was punishing her for rejecting Jesus. In her calmer moments, she knew it was crazy. They'd crashed because of the weather, not because she was Jewish. But Ralph's words ate away at her panicked, hunger-addled mind. That night, the fear and frustration finally broke Helen. She climbed into the plane, curled up into a fetal position, and cried. Ralph climbed in and sat beside her. He assured her that people were looking for them. There was a fatherly authority in his voice that made Helen feel like everything would be okay. Helen finally let Ralph wrap a makeshift splint around her broken arm. It felt too tight, but it did provide relief from the constant pain. She slept all right that night, comforted by the thought that she wasn't alone. The next morning, Ralph started a fire and melted down some snow in an empty oil can. The warm water was the next best thing to a morning cup of coffee. Ralph and Helen split up a portion of their remaining rations and had a little breakfast together. Ralph's jaw was in such bad shape he could barely swallow. He stared out into the vast wilderness, exhausted but determined. They spent the morning talking about their families and what their lives had been like before. Helen told Ralph about her mother and five siblings and the feeling of aimlessness that had sent her to Alaska. Ralph told Helen about his wife, Lee, and their seven children. The family was living in San Francisco with Lee's aunt and uncle. His eyes were lost in reverie as he told the story of how he'd asked that aunt and uncle for Lee's hand in marriage. 
The story felt so vivid to Helen that she told Ralph she already felt like she knew his whole family. Ralph said he felt the same way about Helen's mother and siblings. After breakfast, they redressed each other's wounds. Neither said anything to the other about how bad their injuries looked. This small bit of ignorance was bliss for both of them. Then Ralph set out looking for more firewood while Helen sat by the fire. A wave of gratitude hit Helen as she thought about the dire situation she would be in without Ralph. Despite his swollen fingers and toes, he never complained about doing all the manual labor. Psychologist Anne Maston has studied children and adults who have survived brutal circumstances. She found that the most resilient people have a willingness to adapt to whatever environment they're thrust into. Both Helen and Ralph reflect this trait. They never panicked about their situation or their injuries. They immediately set to figuring out how to survive. Helen was still in such a state of denial about the situation they were in that instead of panicking about the real problems, she found herself worrying about little things, like not being able to stay in shape because of her injured feet. Helen and Ralph were both rapidly losing weight from their lack of food, but this didn't compute for Helen since she couldn't see her body under the layers of heavy winter clothes. She had always been a bit self-conscious about her weight, and she kept thinking about how she wanted to look good when the rescuers got there. Helen realized she could do pull-ups by hanging onto a tree branch. She enjoyed the exercise, partially just because it was a way to pass the time. Ralph spent his time trying to fix things, like his watch, the airplane clock, and the radio, which he thought might be malfunctioning. He tried to build traps to catch the rabbits that occasionally hopped by using tree branches and supplies from the plane, but none of them were successful. The traps ranged from makeshift slingshots, a total failure, to elaborate snares built from suitcases and wires. Helen found the traps terribly funny. Not only did they not seem capable of catching a rabbit, but he never seemed to place them near where the rabbits hopped by. A sort of familial camaraderie grew between the pair. Ralph was old enough to be Helen's father, and he even called her daughter on occasion. In turn, she took to calling him Daddy-O, it started as a joke, but as time went on, she truly meant it affectionately. Their steady routine brought them some comfort, but after a week, Ralph and Helen were getting anxious for help to arrive. On the ninth day, they were down to the last of their rations. On the 10th, all their food was gone. We'll return to the story of Helen and Ralph's survival right after this. Now back to the story. By February 14, 1963, Helen Claben and Ralph Flores had been stranded in the Yukon Forest for 10 days. They were completely lost. Their food rations had run out, and a rescue plane still hadn't arrived. With access to water, the average person can go for about 30 to 40 days without food. Helen and Ralph were both of about average weight at the beginning of their journey so they both had enough body fat to keep them alive for a while. Helen spent the first three days doubled over with stomach cramps. 
But on the fourth morning, she felt that her stomach had, in her own words, gone to sleep. When the body goes without food for an extended period of time, several changes happen. Blood glucose levels stabilize, fat reserves are broken down, and levels of the hunger-controlling hormone ghrelin gradually drop. All of these processes lead to a reduced appetite. The one thing Helen found herself craving was water. She found herself waiting for the bowls of snow Ralph melted down as if she was anticipating a meal at a restaurant. But they had to be wary of how much water they drank. Drinking water meant needing to urinate, and needing to urinate meant having to take off the layers of clothes, guarding them from the sub-zero temperatures. As the days went on, Ralph and Helen tried to keep a positive outlook. They spent the afternoons reading out loud to each other. Helen even relented and allowed Ralph to read her the Bible. Research has also shown that people who believe there's a deeper meaning in life have an easier time coping with difficult environments. Ralph's faith may have been key to giving him the strength to keep going. Similarly, Helen said that the idea of God watching over them brought her peace. Helen even began reading the Bible on her own. Though she disagreed with Ralph's assertion that God would only help them if she accepted Christ into her life, she wanted to believe there was some divine lesson to be learned from all of this. Finishing the Bible gave Claiborne a goal. Making her way through the book made her feel like she was accomplishing something, even as her physical strength continued to dwindle. By the second week in the forest, Helen's right foot had grown unbearably painful. She'd been avoiding looking at the extent of her injuries, but curiosity got the best of her. She unwrapped her feet and looked at her toes. Three of her toes were black blistered, like they'd been burned. She couldn't move them at all. One large blister throbbed like it had its own heartbeat. Helen wondered, almost nonchalantly, what stage of frostbite they were in. She knew that there was nothing she could do about it either way. Meanwhile, the hope of being rescued was slipping away. After a couple weeks, Ralph gave up tinkering with the radio. There'd been no sign that their broadcasts were being received, so the work felt futile. When Helen heard a plane passing by, she would hobble as fast as she could to the clearing near their campsite and flash mirrors up at the planes. But this never attracted any attention either. During the third week, they came to the stomach-churning realization that they hadn't heard a plane in days. Helen asked Ralph if he thought the search party had been called off. Ralph told her firmly that people would keep looking for them. The plane would have cut a path through the trees that a pilot would spot soon. In actuality, Helen was correct. After two weeks of zigzagging across the forest with no results, the search party was called off on around February 18, 1963. Helen felt her heart light up again when she heard another plane flying overhead a couple days later. Suddenly, an idea occurred to Ralph. Helen had packed oil paints. The pair tore a piece of fabric from the plane and worked together to make an SOS sign. 
Ralph used a rope from the plane to hang the sign as high as he could in a tree near the clearing. He hoped the sign would be visible to passing planes. But as the days went by and planes kept passing without slowing down, it became clear that the sign was too low and too small to be visible from above. Ralph announced a risky plan. They would make an even bigger sign, and the next day, he'd climb as high as he could up a tree and hang the sign there. They both knew just how dangerous this plan was, given Ralph's injuries. His broken ribs made every movement painful, and a single faulty branch or gust of wind could send him toppling to the ground. If Ralph was too injured to walk, they'd both be stuck in place without even being able to harvest firewood. But he was absolutely determined to try. That night, Helen had a vivid dream that her feet were healed. She gracefully shimmied up the tree while Ralph fretted below. Helen had been feeling guilty about how little she could contribute to the survival effort. Her subconscious yearned to be able to help Ralph in return. But she woke up to the same painful, blistered feet. She hobbled to the tree to keep watch as Ralph made his ascent. Ralph climbed at a steady, strong pace. With every movement, his body ached from hunger, exhaustion, and broken bones. The wind howled, rattling the branches. When he reached the top, he carefully used one hand to tie the sign around a high branch. He looked out over the treetops and saw, off in the distance, a river and a clearing. He thought the river might lead them to a highway. At the very least, it'd be easier to attract the attention of a pilot if they moved into the clearing. He kept those alternatives in the back of his mind as he descended. But for now, they were back to waiting. The cold and sleeplessness wore on Claiborne. One of the sweaters she was sleeping on had been a special gift from her mother, and homesickness overwhelmed her every time she lay down to sleep. She missed the familiarity of home that she'd been so desperate to flee from back in August. By the end of the third week, Helen broke down. She crawled over and cried into Ralph's chest. All she wanted was to hug her mother. Ralph must have wanted to cry too, but he couldn't let himself do it in front of Helen. He couldn't even hug her. Instead, he lied still and tried to soothe her by saying they'd be found soon. That night, as most nights, Helen and Ralph both dreamed of food. It had been over three weeks since they crashed and about two weeks since they ran out of rations. Helen pondered aloud about how much longer they could survive without food. Ralph told her they could probably make it about 15 more days. They stumbled on one final food source by accident. Helen was brushing her teeth and accidentally swallowed some toothpaste. She told Ralph that it tasted like candy. It didn't offer any nutritional value, but munching on toothpaste made them both feel like they were eating something. After three weeks had passed, Helen noticed the daily prayers Ralph murmured to himself had changed. Until now, she'd heard him pray, please let us go home. Now, however, he said, if it be thy will, 
please let us go home to our loved ones. She looked over and realized Ralph was silently crying. She'd never seen him cry. He was always the strong one. Now she realized he was having his moments of doubt as well. When they sat together by the fire that night, Helen tried to lift their spirits by describing a delicious meal her mother used to make. She sipped her water and imagined it was a bowl of soup. Ralph described one of his wife's homemade meals and imagined the same thing. They both felt a little more optimistic. Imagining what they'd be doing if they were home eased the homesickness. But the positivity could only last for so long. Another week came and went. Helen and Ralph had been stranded for nearly five weeks and they'd been out of food for three. Not a single plane had noticed their SOS sign. Ralph gave up hope of anyone finding them. It was time for his backup plan. He would have to venture into the forest and find civilization himself. They'd leaned on one another so much for the past five weeks. They'd soon need to split up and survive on their own. Thanks for listening to Survival. We'll be back next week to continue with Helen Claben and Ralph Flores' survival in the Yukon Forest. You can find all of ParCast's shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Survival is written by Mandy Bassard and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson.